Hi, everybody. Uh, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I'm here with Girl Writes What, a.k.a. Karen, the Queen of Infinite Renovations. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm doing all right. The renovations aren't done, though. No, no, the renovations are never done. Didn't you know that? Yeah. You actually just have entered a Kafkaesque nightmare yeah. of money and time and filthy sailor language. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a money pit. Oh, my God. Right. No, but it's, it's true. I think that uh, it, is, it is really much the greatest relationship test, both with your own sanity and your partner. Although kids seem to enjoy renovations. They all seem kind of disappointed when they're done. But um, how are your kids enjoying the process? Um, I actually uh, I had my daughter uh, help with all of the painting for about two months. And she says if she never picks up another paint roller again, it'll be 50 billion years too soon. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's good. Now, keep her away from manual labor as a career choice. I find exposing kids to manual labor early on is a great way of helping them value education. So good job. Well done. Now, I just wanted to mention uh, just a business out of the way. So we are, you and I are going to be uh, speaking at the International Conference on Men's Issues, June 26 to 28 in Detroit, where the world comes to play and uh, dodge feminist signposts. Uh, so, um, and, and I really wanted to recommend, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be a great conference, uh, but uh, Karen, you're good in front of a webcam. You are great in front of a crowd. I've been watching uh, your, uh, particularly your Q&A sessions are really uh, riveting and uh, brilliantly done. So I just really wanted to compliment you on the public speaking stuff. I don't know how working with a webcam helps you work with crowds. I think it does. But I just really want. So if you want to come out and see a great speaker, uh, you know, Karen is the person to see. Just wanted to sort of mention that. So what are you going to be chatting about, do you think, in Detroit? You know, uh, I don't know if that's actually been decided yet. Um, there was some uh, some kicking around the idea of uh, sort of taking on the broader topic of whether feminism is really about equality. Um, but, uh, yeah, that has not been decided. I like to go by the, you know, this ride by the seat of my pants, the skin of my teeth, right? You know, write that speech up in the airport while I'm waiting for the <laughs> You know. My particular preference is uh, I, I say I really like a long Q&A session because then there's much less speech to prepare. Uh, yeah. It tends to be more, you know, more filler, you know, more more powder in the cocaine, I guess you could say. Uh, but um, I mean, so um, for, for those who uh, don't know you or don't know uh, your approaches, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your broad approach uh, to, as you talk about writing fearlessly on gender issues for the last couple of years. Uh, because most people, of course, uh, assume that the word feminism uh, has to do with uh, equal rights and, and uh, equality before the law and so on. Uh, your take on it, I, I think, as is mine, is a little bit different. So I wonder if we could, uh, I guess, gently coat the red pill before inserting it to uh, give people a bit of perspective. <laughs> little lube on that yeah. um but uh no no my my approach is basically uh that that uh you know and I, I really don't have a problem with equal rights for women at all um but there there's just been a pattern uh even since uh the 1850s of uh women's advocates uh whether you call them feminists or not uh back then uh, of wanting equal rights without, you know, they wanted equality with men, but in good things, in the rights and the freedoms and the the opportunities, but they they sort of don't seem to want a whole lot in the way of equal responsibilities and equal obligations. And, uh, and one of the biggest things, I think the biggest dangers is, uh, is uh, sort of the theoretical framework that they, they sort of operate in where, uh, you know, there's this big oppressive patriarchy and, uh, and 
you know, so I mean, like you're looking at uh, it's it's not just a movement; it's an ideology. Uh, it, it's uh, fact impervious or evidence impervious, um, and and they're right in there in in uh, into government policy and into legislation, changing things around to compensate for what they see as how the world works, which isn't really how the world works. Um, you know, the whole gender is a social construct. And the moment that you talk about innate differences, they scream bio truther, you know, and, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just insane. I mean, like anyone who's had more than one child knows that you're not born a blank slate, that you actually have a personality when you're born and, uh, or at least the beginnings of one, uh, a temperament. And, uh, they they seem to think that they can just like strong arm society into some kind of perfect utopian equality, and the, the problem with utopianism is that that often you don't really care how you get there, um, and you don't really care how many people are hurt, and uh, you just want want your vision realized. And I think that that's a huge danger. So I mean, like it's really the ideology, it's really the the paradigm that they're working from, and the fact that so many people have bought it. I mean, I, I was talking with Aaron Pitsy uh, on the radio, uh, on a voice for men's uh, radio show revelations with Aaron Pitsy. And, and I, I, I said, you know, like what's most amazing to me is how society seems to actually be operating within this kind of collective delusion as to how the world actually works. And uh, what needs to be done to change things that, you know, that must be changed because they're, you know, bad somehow. And it just it's it's just it's all bad news. It's just it's not it's not a nice thing. Feminism at all. Yeah, I mean, and the funny thing is, and, and it is tragic for those of us who are working for true equality, uh, which is there are great human movements that arise uh, throughout history, and and they're fantastic and wonderful, and uh, aim for you know the end of slavery and uh, equality before the law for various groups, including genders. And then what happens is the government comes in and starts taxing and funding and manipulating, and then the groups begin to face the government, and it becomes sort of propagandistic. And these revolutions don't know when to end. The whole point of a revolution is you're supposed to end it. You know, you're supposed to get rid of slavery and then go find something else to do. But when the government takes it over, these things get, get sort of financed beyond all reason and start inventing problems. And then what happens is people who are skeptical of the government program called whatever it is are then considered to be against the original cause behind it. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, you know, if you're against government education, somehow you don't want children to be educated. And if you're against government sponsored and funded and fundamentally coercive feminism or feminist uh, social policies, somehow you're against women. And, and that's so tragic for, for people to think that the government program is the initial impulse, but it's something that needs to be constantly reiterated to people. Oh, well, that's that's it, too. I mean, like, if you're against uh, sort of the continued erosion of due process in sexual assault cases, um, then you must be pro-rape. And if you're against uh, the sort of the hogging of all the resources for female victims of domestic violence and you want those resources shared, whether they're community provided, uh, you know, on a private donation basis or whether they're government provided, if you want some share of that to go to men, male victims as well then you're, you're, you don't want to stop violence against women. What a horrible person you are. 
right? And it, it just, it's almost like they, they have to work as much as feminism talks about how there is no gender binary. There's no strict binary. It, that's the world that they're operating in where, where there is this binary, you know, and the binary is, you know, man bad, woman good. The binary is, you know, man up, women need help. You know, it's, it's, you know, men are oppressors, women are oppressed, men are privileged, women are disadvantaged. Uh, it doesn't, it's got such a lack of nuance. And then what they do is they say, but intersectionality, you know, we're, we're past that now. We have this intersectionality thing um, where, you know, we have these intersections of oppression based on not just gender, but on race and class and, you know, whether you're able-bodied or, or disabled or, you know, on all of these things, right? But in the hierarchy, men are still privileged by maleness and, and women are still disadvantaged by femaleness across the board. It's, it's kind of like having, you know, a bowl full of lettuce and saying it's a salad and then adding some like, I don't know, a piece of chicken on top and saying it's no longer a salad. It's intersectional now. Right. You know, it's the same thing. It's just got all this window dressing on it. It's just there's a uh... Yeah, there's an old statement. I, I think it was Emerson who said, mistrust any enterprise that requires the purchasing of new clothes. For me, it's mistrust any ideology that requires the invention of new words. Uh, you know, we've, we've got great words, you know, like justice, truth, virtue, uh, rationality, equality, and so on. When people start inventing new words, I just assume I'm going to be taken for a sophist ride and end up quite a bit lighter in the, po in, in the wallet. One of the things that I find frustrating as well is the degree to which when women have deficiencies, statistically, it's the man's fault. Interestingly, when men have statistically, uh, st uh, sorry, have deficiencies, statistically, it's also the man's fault. So oh. it's, it's somehow men's fault that women uh, earn less, even though the fundamental fact that women are pregnant and breastfeed, I think, would have some impact on income capacities. But uh, the fact that men die earlier is also men's fault for just being addicted to workaholism and status. Well, the, you know, the pregnancy thing is the men's fault too, right? I mean, he got her pregnant. She had nothing to do with it, right? Um, but... I think there's one, though, there is, the, but to be fair, there is one woman in theological history who can claim that. But after that, the questions here, the, the, the issue of personal responsibility for pregnancy post-Holy Ghost seems to be a bit dubious. Um, yeah, well, I think I think there is just a, a general, and I don't think that this is, uh, is a, a feminist invented thing. I've done entire sort of analyses on on this phenomenon um it's not a feminist invention that we transfer responsibility that we offload responsibility from women for their own actions right and onto the nearest available man and if there isn't a man around right we have this handy dandy boogeyman now named patriarchy and uh, and so we can blame that and i you know this is this is sort of a, a an age-old uh psychological phenomenon it's it's been it's been around forever right uh look at uh, coverture laws right men were held responsible for their wives criminal behavior um she was not seen as responsible because vagina and you know like so i mean like you have all of these things and that that have been going on forever and feminism has really prided itself on dismantling all of these old traditional ways of thinking when in reality they are perpetuating them and they're exploiting them and they're manipulating the public's natural inclination to see things that way 
Uh, you even see this with uh, domestic violence. Uh, you know, our natural inc inclination, you know, up to the domestic violence movement probably was if you saw a woman hitting a man, the first thought that would pop into your head would generally be, I wonder what he did to deserve that. Um, he must have done something because she can't actually act just out of her own desire to act or her own volition. She she has to be her actions have to be justified or excused or have a reason, have a cause outside of herself, uh, because otherwise she'd be responsible for them. And uh, what the domestic violence movement and the Duluth model, the patriarchal terrorism model, did was it it, it basically it enshrined that in policy and law, uh, you know, like you can, you can read, I read one study, it was a feminist study where the, in the tables it listed as for motivations for why you're hitting. Um, men said, 8% of men who hit said they hit in self-defense and 7% of women who hit said they hit in self-defense, but in the results section or the discussion section, uh, it says you know, while women generally hit only in self-defense, men tend to hit to coerce or control their partner and dominate their partner, right? Like, so, I mean, they're, right. they're taking data from their their own tables and, and kind of changing it and twisting it and or completely ignoring it. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I see this everywhere. I mean, when I was doing research on women's role in the cycle of violence, because there's this belief that, that men just sort of grow up hating women because patriarchy, right? Uh, as opposed to a study that I had a, uh, the psychologist on the show recently, a study came out which showed that uh, women uh, were, were hitting their children uh, 900 plus times every year. Oh. Uh, and, and, you know, so, it, you know, one thing that could occur is if you're a little boy, and of course, it's terrible for little girls as well. But if you're a little boy being repeatedly fundamentally battered by your mother, then you might grow up with having some resentment towards women. But every time I see this, so you see domestic violence uh, uh, conversations, particularly in sociology, and, you know, men hit because evil, because patriarchy and so on. But whenever we talk about women hitting either in domestic violence situations or against children, which is far more egregious, then the excuses come pouring out. Well, they're stressed, they're worried, they're upset. They're like so, or with, because or patriarchy because, evil, but women are like uh, the excuses come flowing out, and it's a very hard thing to look at women's role in the cycle of violence. Well, it really is, and and what what's so frustrating to me because I was watching it was it was a BBC documentary uh, that was aired. It was a, it was a while ago, um, but they interviewed some. Uh, feminist, uh, she's sort of, uh, she's, for years she's studied the hacker community, right, and it's about online trolling and things like this, and uh, and misogyny online, because trolling men is, is just trolling, but trolling women is misogyny. Um, but she actually came out and said, the problem is that men have been raised to hate women. And... By who? I'm thinking... Who raised them? Well, no, I'm thinking to myself, do you even realize what you're saying, right? If men are being raised and enculturated and socialized to hate women, right, the entire first 10 years of their lives are dominated by women. Sometimes they may not encounter a male, adult male role model in a position of authority other than the principal of the school who, you know, if, if, if you're a decent kid, you won't interact with much at all. Um, but you might not encounter your first male teacher until you're in high school, right? So I, it's just, it, it's just, how can she say that 
And yet somehow there's no culpability on the part of women. There's no culpability on the part of mothers, of daycare workers, of elementary school teachers, right? Of all of the women that control pretty much every aspect of, of a child's life. It, it's, it, it just, it, how can she, like misogynists are not born, they are made, but who are they made by? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, when I was growing up and I grew up uh, with a single mom, my friends were all, you know, we were on the sort of low rent single mom farm because I was part of sort of the wave of divorces in the in the 70s. And so, yeah, we grew up a single mom. So the teachers were all women and so on. And and I, you know, by the time I got to sort of my early teens and began to hear about patriarchy, I was literally I was literally baffled. I was like, wait, I have this superpower I didn't even know about. I could just command women and they'll do what I say because penis. I mean, uh, it never seemed to work. <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh, it's life. just like terrible. It was just one of these awful things. It was like, right, I can fly. Let me try jumping off this building. Ah! <laughs> I mean, it, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and, you know, like they've done some research and they found that uh, sexist attitudes, uh, children learn sexist attitudes primarily from their mothers. Well, of course they do. They learn everything about life primarily from their mothers. Um, you know, like fathers, if you have an involved father, if you're very lucky, you you learn a lot of other stuff about life from your dad. Uh, but if you are, you know, the child of a single parent, if you are, you know, if your dad is a primary breadwinner or a sole breadwinner and he's only home two hours a day while you're awake through your childhood, um, you're just not going to be learning a whole lot about, you know, like the, this sort of the learning by osmosis that kids do just through observation and interaction with other people. You know, you're learning all of those things from your mom, right? Yeah. And your daycare worker and your school teachers. So. Well, and I, you know, again, growing up uh, in a single mom household, there were lots of men who were flocking around my mom. She was very attractive. Lots of men flocking around my mom, taking her out for dinners, taking her to the theater, taking her to movies and so on. And so I saw men in a sort of supplicating role. Oh, okay. uh, basically, bribing for sex was, was the basic equation. And just all circling around her, who not a very high quality woman, in, to say the least, in my opinion, but they're all circling around her. So sort of my model for men was, uh, OK, so you you kind of throw resources at a woman uh, in the hopes of sleeping with her. Again, I wouldn't say the highest quality men either. But this idea that then somehow it's a patriarchy was just uh, shocking to me. I mean, whoever gets the ring is kind of in control. And when I talk to people on my show, if they've had bad problems with their families and they say, well, my dad was this terrible guy, but my mom, you know, put up with it or suffered through it or whatever. And I have to keep reminding them that the woman chose to marry him and probably had the choice of more than one suitor. And uh, it's responsible for a lot of what happens afterwards. But uh, women take all this choice in society and want the ring and want the dinners and so on and then play victims if their choices don't work out. And that just seems foreign to me fundamentally. Um, yeah, you know, like it, it, it is it's like it's a, it's a difficult thing. I mean, the, the thing is, is like there's room to make mistakes and there's room to uh, to make a bad decision and learn from it. That's the thing. You, you know, you can't learn from it until you own the fact that that was your choice. And uh, so but I mean, taking responsibility again, I've I've sort of discussed uh, this in depth you know, in, in several videos and, and all of that, like women are, uh, I think biologically programmed, uh, if they can 
to avoid negative uh, avoid negative consequences and uh, or avoid taking the negative consequences um, and avoid obligations and avoid costs and avoid risks and and all of these things and and so I mean like they're happy to take credit when something awesome happens right but they they really don't want the blame and then you see this with uh, constantly when you're arguing with feminists when you know, when women got the vote, that was a victory for all of feminism, right? And when Erin Pizzi, who wasn't even a feminist, opened the world's first battered women's shelter, right? That was the start of a victory for all of feminism. Um, so they'll even take credit for things they didn't do. But when it comes to the negative impacts, oh, feminism isn't a monolith, right? Not all feminists are like that. There's a million different kinds of feminism, Right. Or there's a million different ways to be a feminist. Right. Duck blame, duck blame, whatever you do, just run, run. Right. Um, because here comes the blame and nobody wants to take it. Nobody wants to have it stick to them. And uh, I, this, is, this is a uniquely female, I think, uh, uh, behavior, this extreme, extreme. I mean, nobody likes to take the blame for something. Nobody likes to be criticized. Right. But this extreme avoidance of any of that. Right. It's it's yeah. And and it's so frustrating. You know, I mean, you have a daughter. I have a daughter. And one of the things that, that is really kind of uniquely terrifying for me as a parent is the degree to which my daughter is going to be launched into a society that is going to make up excuses ad infinitum, ad nauseum for any negative decisions she might make. You know, after all my careful parenting and, and responsibility and ownership and, and not evading the consequences of one's actions, she's going to go out into the world with a massive Greek chorus of excuses and avoidance. And uh, I, that's one of the reasons I need to sort of build her up so strong, because society is going to kind of erode her down and say that she's not responsible and she's a victim and so on. And boy, you know, after, you know, after 150 years of, of feminism, we'd sure hope that some of this victimhood could at least have been cured by now. And and with all the power that women have in, in voting and property rights and contract and family law and and preferential policies and, and affirmative action, you'd think that by now some of this victimhood might have been blunted. But I guess it's the engine that makes the state money flow. So it's kind of hard to disregard. But it's a, it's a horrible thing to launch a child into a society that will tell her she's a blameless victim her whole life. I mean, that's that's uh, it's such an erosion of autonomy that it's really scary. Yeah, well, I mean, and I thought it was hilarious because uh, Gloria Steinem was interviewed not that long ago. Um, I forget who she was interviewed by, but... Uh, the Jennifer Aniston? Do I have that right? Did Jennifer Aniston interview? I read something. I think she was interviewed by Glenn, Jennifer Aniston uh, in, in sort of her peak of her intellectual career. But uh, anyway, it doesn't really hugely matter. Go on. The interviewer asked her, well, you know, uh, would you say that uh, women are... Uh, feeling more oppressed than ever. And Gloria Steinem says, yes, yes, they are feeling more oppressed and, and justifiably so. They mm. have good reason. And I'm thinking, so basically you've declared feminism uh, a unilateral and, and catastrophic failure, right, in that statement, because after 50 years of feminism, if women are more oppressed, right, because if women are feeling more oppressed with good reason, yeah. And it's because they're more like, like, and then of course her solution, more feminism, right? Um, because yeah, 
the whole uh, definition of stupidity thing doesn't seem to apply to, to feminists. Right? Oh, Karen, you know, this is a government program. Like all government programs, the problem gets worse, which justifies more funding. You know, like yeah. apparently we need more funding for education now, even though in some places in the U.S. it's close to $20,000 per year per student being spent. Uh, this stuff doesn't work. And after trillions and trillions of dollars have been poured into, you know, I've read good studies that say that the growth of the welfare state is the growth of the single mother uh, resource provision state uh, after this, I mean, more money has been poured at uh, feminism than most of humanity had throughout most of its history. And if the result of that massive amount of, of resource um, thievery and, uh, uh, and movement is that women feel more oppressed than ever, then clearly we should be doing the opposite of whatever we've been doing. You know, my smoking cure for lung cancer doesn't seem to be helping. So maybe we should stop smoking. But, you know, that's not going to happen because you say whatever you can to get more money and power usually. Well, I mean, it's, you know, and, and going on the, uh, the entire, you know, uh, the idea of, you know, daughters being or our daughters being surrounded by this, you know, you're blameless. It's not your responsibility. It's not your fault. Anything that happens to you, you're, you're just a victim and there was nothing you could do. Um, like, you know, like making excuses. Like I, my daughter, I catch her doing that. Right. I don't stand for it, but you know, here's the thing. Kids of, of both sexes will do that. I mean, literally, uh, kids will lie like a rug if it means somebody else's, you know, neck is going in the news. You know, who did this? Oh, it was him, right? It was, My invisible friend stole the candy bar, right? You know, I had to eat it because his teeth are new. You know, like kids don't need to be taught even more to avoid responsibility for their actions. And yet, you know, you just see this. And, you know, I was watching, uh, watching some clips uh, from the White Privilege Conference and having, uh, it was like a big national conference of educators and policymakers and stuff all converging to discuss white privilege and how they're bringing it into elementary school classrooms. Arguably, yes, life is, is easier for white people, right? Um, just sort of, it's, not quite as difficult uh, based, you know, all other things being equal. If you're white, then if you're black. Skype fart. Sorry, Karen, if you could just take it up from the uh, white privileged uh, man's um, conference. Well, <laughs> I just, you know, like they had, they showed uh, video clips of these little eight-year-old kids talking about white privilege in the classroom. And kids at that age really don't have uh, the cognitive abilities to, uh, they they tend to think in uh, ironically sort of black white ways, and if this person is being harmed because they're not white, then that means that I'm the villain. Um, this is sort of how kids will interpret it in a very simplistic way. So you know, like introducing concepts like that at that early age, uh, that just seems like a recipe for uh, it, it's it's basically a way to indoctrinate students into feeling guilty because they're white right well and i'm you know i'm personally I, i'm happy to take on the mantle of white privilege and uh, make my abasements and amendments thereby but my sort of concern is that when people slough off responsibility to another group 
then <laughs> yeah. they, to the degree that they do that, there is a tendency for them to work less hard at fixing problems within their own group. So I'm certainly happy to take on white privilege, but, you know, first and foremost, you know, minority communities need to be hitting their children less. They need to have more commitments to education and rationality. In my, you know, as an atheist, I would assume that they would need to be a little bit less religious since I think that is kind of harmful to critical thinking. So, uh, you know, there's a long way for minority groups to go less criminality uh, and less violence and so on. Uh, it, that can't all be put at the, you know, the feet of, of the terrible white men, I, uh, and usually white men, I guess, and white women if it's white privilege. So, yeah, my concern would be, okay, yeah, you know, blame white men. Uh, I do too. You know, a lot of history is, is but terrible things were done by white men. But, you know, it, the important thing is say, okay, well, if that's the case, then we better really up our game to, to sort of bring ourselves up to the same level. And my concern is that the blame game ends up without the self-reform reality that is really the only way to progress. This is this is really it. Um, it it basically says uh, says to people that you don't need to you know you shouldn't have to work harder than that other guy um, to get the things that he has right because everything should be equal right from the get go. And I mean, like my boyfriend's dealing with this in trying to get a job. I mean, he's he's in a field where uh, most of the people who are recent graduates uh, they get a job through their families. They have an uncle who works here or they have, you know, they even have uh, like a big display of, you know, the family trees of all the people who've gone to that university and taken these courses. Right. You know, like it's it's just the, it's like a, a pay into nepotism. Right. And so you, you just you look at it and he doesn't have those family connections. He doesn't have any of that head start. He's going to have to work a lot harder. And, yeah, he sometimes bitches and moans about it. Right. Mostly he bitches and moans that nobody's willing to admit that they got their job through their uncle. They want to think that it's perfect meritocracy. Right. Um, no, they got there entirely on their own. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you just have to, you know, you have your little bit of a, a moan and then you get to work. Yeah. Right. And yeah, well, blame is relief. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Blame is relief plus helplessness. And mm -hmm. uh, that that is the great challenge. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, it's it's. I, I was pretty much done, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's a really difficult thing because you you know you, you're caught between acknowledging that there there is an issue, right, and and you have to acknowledge that there is an issue, uh, just like uh, with male privilege, you know, and female disadvantage. Yes, that is an issue. There, there's also the issue of female privilege and male disadvantage. Uh, it doesn't quite work the way it does with sort of a tribalistic uh, thing like race. Uh, because men and women have always had a sort of uh, balancing set of advantages and disadvantages, privileges and obligations all through history, right? Um, what There has to be some kind of acknowledgement of that, but, you know, there really has to just be an acceptance that, okay, this is the way it is, at least for now, let's get on with it. And, and the only person that I can control is me, Right. Margaret Thatcher didn't get where she was by pissing and moaning about male privilege and the old boys club and and all of that other stuff. Right. And she didn't get where she got by blaming other people because it's harder to get where she got if you're a woman. Right. So I just it, it's just excuse making. It's just, you know, it's uh, it's it's not it's not it's not helpful. It's not healthy for people. So, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's little greater contempt that you can have for any class of people than to remove their agency in your mind or to tell them that they're less responsible than other people or they can't get ahead because, I, I, you know, that is a terrible old time, like disturb the mummy's tomb kind of gypsy curse to put on an entire segment. And when segments are disadvantaged of society, it gives them relief because it takes, oh, you know, okay, so it's not me or whatever. And of yeah. course, to some degree, there's, there's truth in that. But uh, yeah. the reality is that uh, I think it's an incredibly destructive thing to do to an entire group of people to uh, strip away their moral agency, to give them not just the temporary relief of blame, but the permanent, permanent morphine drip of helplessness. Uh, it, it really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which uh, I think is loathsome for, for women, for uh, minorities, uh, for natives, uh, and uh, for, for every group. Well, it's it, one of the one of the interesting things is is this uh, w- with feminists is this idea of victim blaming that you can't victim blame, and it, which I suppose is correct. I mean, you can't you can't really go up to you know a rape victim and say it's your fault you were raped you you know you obviously were asking for it, but uh, that's not all that they describe as victim blaming. Victim blaming is uh, you know you have preemptive victim blaming where you're saying you know I don't think you should stay at this party. I don't think you should drink so much. You know, if you want to stay safe, you should do this and this and this, right? And uh, maybe don't go home with that guy uh, on one night's acquaintance, right? That that you should behave in ways that minimize your risk of being victimized. That is also what they call victim blaming. And one of the things about uh, trauma response, uh, when whenever anything bad happens to a person that is very, very traumatic, emotionally traumatic, one of the things that they will do, their brain will immediately start to do this um, once they realize that they're safe, again, is figure out what they did leading up to that. If there was anything that they did, right, that contributed to the situation in which that happened, right? So if I'm walking in the woods and and I'm letting my kids, my young kids run up, you know, way ahead on the path and one of them gets picked off by a cougar, right, once that whole huge turmoil is is calming down, I will immediately be telling myself I should never have let my kid run up ahead on the path, right? Am I blaming myself? Yes, but this is a survival strategy. This is what your brain makes you do so you can learn a lesson so it won't happen again. And one of the, uh, one of the interesting things is I think that the people who have the most trouble processing a traumatic event or getting over or getting past it or moving on are the people who the trauma was the equivalent of being struck by lightning while sitting in their living room on a clear day. You can never, yeah, you can never keep yourself safe in the future. So your fight or flight mechanism never diminishes, really. That's right. You know, so as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the cruelest thing you can say to somebody who's been traumatized um, you don't have to say anything at all in regard to what they did or didn't do. But the cruelest thing you could say is there's nothing you could have done. Right. Cause that just tells them there's nothing you can ever do to keep it from happening again. And it, it just, it, this is what feminists seem to want to do to female victims of trauma, female, female victims of rape, female victims of domestic violence. Right. It was never your fault. Nothing you did right? Led to that happening, right? And it's almost like they really want to, uh, Alison Tiemann, uh, she blogs under the name Typhon Blue. 
she she once described it sort of as keeping victims in a pen, right? Um, mm. So that people people can look in at these victims that are still victims. They'll always be victims because they're being kept there by the rhetoric of feminism, right? They will never get over it, and and it's they're there for show. It's like they're there to be paraded out when it's time to change legislation, and if they actually ever healed, they wouldn't be a as useful to the feminist movement as if they're kept in a state of perpetual victimhood, right? And and that is probably one of the the cruelest things that I think feminism does. So. Yeah, it's it's and the same thing happens with government programs. That whoever is supposed to benefit from the government programs can be viewed as a kind of crop that you need to keep watering and replanting uh, so that you can continue to maintain your income as a farmer. And uh, it is a form of livestock management. It's pretty chilling. Now, Karen, I've heard tell. And it may even have been from your lips themselves. I've heard tell that you may be working on a book. Is this true? Oh, yeah. Define working. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about mulling over the possible construction of arranging the table of contents in your mind, whatever that is. I, I'm I'm sort of getting an outline uh, done. You know, it's it's a really difficult thing to approach because there's just so much there. Um, it might end up having to be more than one book, um, but there there's just a huge huge amount of ground to cover if if it's going to be an introductory um, sort of for everybody rather than preaching to the choir uh, or you know or educating those who already know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a daunting, uh, thought. I mean, back when I was writing fiction, I would just start, I would just think of a couple characters, think of a scene and start. And I didn't have to outline anything. I didn't write a synopsis. I didn't even know how the book was going to end. Sometimes I didn't know who the villain was until three quarters of the way through it. Right. So it just was an organic process. And this is just a little bit more. Uh, regimented and see you're you're just overthinking it all you need to do is pay some south korean service to transcribe your videos put them together as chapters and call it a book take some donations (laughs) well (laughs) that's my approach actually yeah maybe i maybe i'll do that i i don't know i don't know it's hard to say like i i do want it to be sort of a comprehensive uh uh book that that goes from one subject coherently you know a little bit less uh a series of essays a little bit more sort of a an overview of, of everything that I think is going on. So, but yeah. Well, I certainly wish you the best. I know that uh, going from, uh, particularly with nonfiction, I think I've done seven or eight, going from sort of the blank page to the finished product, especially when you're working as I've done on a series of books uh, uh, on, on voluntarism and so on. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And of course, right in the middle of renovations, right in the middle of working, as you said, 80 hours a week when your boyfriend is looking for work, it's a, it's a lot to take on. But, uh, you know, I certainly would eagerly await to, to get to get a copy. I've always really enjoyed your writing and your clarity of thought and exposition is, is delightful. And uh, there's not many who can surpass you in the explication of these issues. So, um, you know, when you get round to it, I will certainly be first in line to uh, to get a copy now um so uh, you do have of course it's it's um youtube.com slash girl writes what highly recommended to to check out your channel and you're speaking of course uh, as we um uh, as we talked about we're speaking june 26th to 28th 2014 are you there for the conference as a whole are you going to bungee in and out oh no i never bungee in and out there's just way too much hanging out and partying and drinking to do 
Um, Excellent. All right. So you'll be there now. Do you have any other things going on over the next uh, next little while that people should know about? Um, there's tentatively scheduled a, uh, a conference at a university in at uh, Kennesaw State University that I've been invited to. But well, the details all have to be hashed about out with that. Uh, I think that's going to be happening in November. And uh, other than that, nothing really on my slate. Uh, it's um, I've I've sort of had a busy first little bit of the year with uh, with speaking and appearances, some spur of the moment things that happened here in town. And uh, that was actually really cool. It was a Freedom School conference um, put on by a former member of the Wild Rose Party here in Alberta. And uh, I was just sort of invited the night before to talk on a panel about political correctness uh, alongside Janice Via Mango, which was awesome. It was awesome to meet her. But um, so, I mean, like I've do been doing stuff like that. Um, staying involved with men's rights Edmonton as much as I can, but yeah, a lot of working and, and no, no more things really on the, in the foreseeable future, no more events. So, well, which I'm is sure, not necessarily sure. the best thing. Yeah, it's not, it, it's that. a lot of work, particularly when you have kids, I mean, the travel and I, I, you know, I've yet to give a speech where I'm not tired. <laughs> from something or another. Uh, so, uh, but I certainly look forward to, to sitting down. Hopefully we can have a drink uh, in Detroit. And uh, I really want to recommend, again, it's youtube.com slash a girl writes what, uh, and you should just check out her speeches, if nothing else. I mean, certainly the, the essays are great. Uh, speeches and the Q&A is, uh, is fantastic. Um, but thanks again so much. I think your third time on the show, it's always a, a great pleasure. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in Toronto. Oh, no, in Detroit. What am I talking about, Toronto? In Detroit. Sorry about that. Detroit. All right. Um, thank you very Take much. Take care, Karen. Bye. Bye.